We're going to pick up where we left off. We've been in this series called The New Man, and uh, we, we've spent several weeks, and, and a lot of it we spend going over the same stuff um, because there's a reason for that, is we've got to get this inside of us, not just an agreement that, yes, what the Word said is true. We've got to get past that. That's superficial. We have got to get to the point where the Word of God is so true in our lives that every word on every page is the absolute fact in the world that we live. And the problem is today is that we believe it kind of, sort of, but not really. The one thing that we can accept without a shadow of a doubt, yep, we're going to heaven. What's amazing about that is how do we have such confidence in our ability to go to heaven, but we don't for the other promises of God? And the truth is, is I think it's quite simple, honestly, is we are not faced with eternity on a daily basis. We don't stare death in the eye every single day. At least I hope not. I mean, because your life would be pretty miserable. Now, there are places that do. I mean, you look at the stuff that's going on in El Salvador, right? You know, we're doing work down there. We're working on bringing a family up here. Um, we've got the ball rolling on that thing. But, I mean, every day there's gang violence going around. Somebody in their neighborhood is killed every single day. It's a whole different world. We're pretty blessed up here. Down there, it might be a little different. But we're so confident that we are right with God, but we don't look at what that being right with God means. You know, and, and, and so this is where it comes down to getting into the Word and what it says. And so we'll, we'll start off in Colossians 3. We've read this every week. We're going to continue to read it every week because you've got to believe it. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things where which above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Now, we've talked about this at, at, to the point where maybe you're like, oh my goodness, please don't read Colossians anymore. Well, that's tough. We're going to read it every week because we don't think about what these words mean. If you were then raised with Christ, there's only one way that happened. There's only one time that Christ was raised. That was three days after he died. It says, if, if you were raised with Christ, that means either you were or you weren't, but the possibility is there that you were. Focus on the things that are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. What doesn't make sense to us and the mindset that we have, but would to a Jewish believer, is that the right hand of the king was the place where all authority was given. He acted out. He was the ambassador for the father. We are the ambassador for the son. We are his representative. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It told them they died. So either Paul is crazy and he's writing a letter to dead people and expecting them to read it, or he's not talking about physical death here. He is talking about the death that we died at the time that Christ died. When we were born again, we died with him on that cross and were raised with him three days later. That's what this is talking about. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members, which are on the earth. Now remember, what member is currently on this earth? Your body, right? Where is your spiritual person? It's seated with Christ in heavenly places, according to Ephesians 2, where the body of Christ is, because that's where the head is. Put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, because these things are the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them, but now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. This is not an all-encompassing list. Put these things out. Put off these things. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man which is in renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him who where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all in all. You are created in the image of God. Not this one, okay? This one is not fit enough to be in the image of God, right? 
That was a joke. Stay with me here. The one that has the right to stand before the Lord, that can enter boldly into the throne room and find grace when we need it, is that spiritual person that has been made new, not fixed, but died and was born brand new in the image of Christ. That is the one that can stand there before the presence of God. This one here is going to die. We're going to shed this thing. We're going to be created in the likeness of God, and we will see him and be with him forever. But understanding the opposite here, you've got one, which is the son of disobedience, talking about your flesh, and then you've got this spiritual new man in which there is no sin. If there is no sin, then therefore you are righteous according to the standards that God laid out. As you're going to see today is that the law was instituted because of sin and it pointed it out. Because without some standard to apply to it, how do you know what is right and what is wrong? There has to be a standard. But that inner person meets the standard because it's created in the image of God. We have to understand that because we have a job to do, as we've seen week in and week out. We are the hands and feet of Jesus Christ to go into this world preaching the gospel. The problem is, is his hands are tied and his feet are lame, which means they cannot walk, not that they're not cool. That's that, don't confuse those two words. But the thing is, guys, is we're not doing that. We do all these things that make ourselves feel good. If you go to church on Sunday, you're like, yep, I put in my time. I'm good to go for another week. If I send money to some missionary, yep, I just did the work of the Lord. I'm doing the Lord's work here. Those are great things. There's nothing wrong with those. But somehow, somewhere, we've lost the idea that you and I individually are responsible to spread the kingdom of God. And you start right where you're planted. We're always looking to go further, go away, go do somewhere else. We never think to say, maybe I'm here for a reason, and maybe that reason is to serve the Lord. And through serving the Lord, people will see Christ. And by seeing Christ through me, they'll come to the saving knowledge of Him, and they'll be created in the image of Him. And guess what they'll do? They'll start doing the same thing. It is the ultimate pyramid scheme. Forget 31. Forget Amway. Jesus like got the corner on the market here, Right? Nobody ever got suckered into one of those? Okay, yeah, I didn't think I was alone, okay? I had a friend of mine, it seemed like everything this guy touches turns to gold. Everything. And I told him one time, I said, man, the next time you're ready to do something, I want in. Like, I want a piece of what's happening. Well, sure enough, the very next thing was a pyramid. Needless to say, I have 1800 less dollars than I did when I started. So... Use wisdom and discernment, thus saith the Lord. Okay, I'm getting off on a tangent here. I'm not bitter at all, not at all. So anyway, but guys, understanding our responsibility here. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 12, For we do not commend ourselves. Remember, this is Paul speaking. He's speaking in both of these books. Again to you, but give you the opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, that one being Christ, then all died. And he died for all, that those who, who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Who is the them? Those who believe. That's the thing. It's those who believe. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Here's the question. Do you believe it? You should. 
And if you believe that, then why are we not walking in that confidence and boldness that we are in this world, we are not of this world, we have a responsibility to God here. Why do we not walk around as like, this, I shouldn't say spiritual haughtiness, but you know what I mean by that. I don't mean arrogance, I mean confidence. Like, here we've got a spiritual warfare going on between good and evil, in a sense, and we kind of walk around like, oh, I hope the devil doesn't know what I'm up to today. That's how we act. We'll never say that. We'll never admit it, but that's how we act. We go into things. When we're praying for the sick, we go in and we're praying, Lord, please heal them with one eye open. Like, I sure hope this is working. We go in there and we preach the gospel and we're like, okay, so this is why I believe and maybe you should too. Like, like somebody's going to die. They're going to spend eternity separated from God. There ought to be a sense of, of uh, expedience that needs to be in our response to that. But yet we're like, well, I just let my light shine. I hope they see it. There's a saying that's gone around. It's gotten very popular that preach the gospel in all times and if necessary, use words. Here's the truth. It's necessary. Use words. It's good to let them see your light. But if you never talk about why that light is in you, don't expect them just to one day wake up. It must be Jesus in them. That could happen, but that's not often the case. I had a friend of mine that I have been talking to since the eighth grade about the things of the Lord, eighth grade. And he, uh, to, just two years ago, talked about, he's like, how come you're always so nice and you're helping people out? Like, wh why do you like people so much? I kind of let the cat out of the bag. I really don't like people. People irritate me. I'm just kidding about that. <laughs> but, but he, I mean, all these years I've talked about, he never made the connection. That there's a reason for that. I'm not doing it because I have to. There's something inside of me that hurts for these people that are separated from God. I don't care what their physical situation is, their financial situation. If you're separated from God, that's the only thing I care about. We can fix those other things. But right now, we need Jesus. I'm getting on a soapbox. Now, verse 18. Now, all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. Okay? Brought us back together because of what Jesus did. And has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ. The Father was in him, reconciling the world, which is everybody, to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us, this is us, the believers, the word of reconciliation. That ministry to go out and do what Jesus did. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are his representative on this earth, carrying out his wishes, his desire with his authority and his blessing. As though God were pleading through us, God begging through you and I, that we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We implore you. That is a word that we don't often use, but this is like, I'm begging you. For your own sake. And for whose? The sake of Christ. He wants you to be reconciled to God. That's why he came and died. Please, I beg you, do this. Give your life and your heart to him. We don't walk around with that sort of um, uh, emphasis anymore. Like, you know, if you want to, raise your hand. You bow your head, close your Like, we make it so passive. But here is that Paul saying, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And how is that possible? It's possible because the Father took him who knew no sin, that being Christ, and made him sin on our behalf that we could become the righteousness of God. But the key that unlocks everything is in him. That's the key. We saw last week that in, in, in the book of 1 John that the, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, right? And what was that that he destroyed? It was sin. But today, 
Well, we look at this, okay? Every week I think, okay, this is the last time where I'm going to talk about this very subject, and then we're going to kind of move on from where we want to go. And I can't get released from it yet. I don't know why. I don't know if we're not at the point where we truly believe it, or I don't know if it's just like, man, we just needed more of this, because this is the word. But the key that unlocks everything, that makes you right with God, is not your confession. And it's not the things you do. It's this very word, or I should say words, in him. This is everything. If I simplified the gospel to anything, that would be it. It's being in him, believing in him. How do I know this? Well, for one, we just read it, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. How are we made righteous in God? It's in him. Okay? John 3.16, you guys know this one, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes what? In him should not perish but have everlasting life. How do you have everlasting life? Your belief in him. I'll explain that more in a minute. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him, which could be said in him, that might be saved. It means you're not guaranteed, but you could be if you put your faith in him. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son. Now, I've got to explain this because we take this too lightly, but the belief in him is not like, well, I believe that God's real. I believe that Jesus died for our sins. Those are great things, but in the book of James, even the demons believe and they tremble. It's not believe that God, it's believe in God. Putting your faith and your hope in Him. I am exchanging my worldly desires and passions and belief to what He has done. And I'm putting them in Him. Which means if I put my trust in Him, then I am believing that He is going to perform and fulfill His promises. Yes? It's no different than anybody else. If I put my trust in somebody, I am counting on them to do what they said they will do. All right? Anybody who's ever had employees know exactly what I'm talking about. I've had several employees. I had a landscape business for years. We had about 15 guys working for us. And part of the things that they had to do is when they first came in, the, the, check the oil, grease everything up, get it ready to go for the thing. I put my trust in them that they would do exactly what they said they would do. They would drive from uh, place to place, taking care of everything they're supposed to do it correctly and then at the end of the day unloading and have a certain performance that they were supposed to do. I'd put my trust in them that they were doing it because I wasn't riding in the truck with them. Now there were times when they didn't do that. We'd catch them napping somewhere. There was a time that one guy ran the mower out of oil at the very first uh, place that they were. I don't know if you're an expert on motors but that's not good on them. And number one on the on the checklist is check the oil. Add oil if you need it, because those things will burn through them. And he says, well, I did check the oil. It's not my fault. Like, so you mowed for 15 minutes, and it ran it all out of oil. Yeah, because that's how that works, right? I put my trust in him. He let me down. But here's the thing. We're putting our faith and our hope in him, which means it's not in us. It's the opposite of that. The problem we have in Christianity today is we put our faith and our hope in other people. We put our faith and our hope in our pastor that he will do the things he's supposed to do and do right. And then if he fails us, then we're just crushed. We put our faith and hope in somebody that we consider a spiritual authority. And when they mess up, we're absolutely crushed. Should we be? No. Maybe disappointed, but crushed? Why was your faith in their ability to perform? Because we already know they're going to fail. At some point, they're going to mess up. Intentionally, unintentionally, we don't know. It's in him. It's the opposite. Everything about God is the opposite to the ways of this world, and we have to get that. If you want to be rich, what does God tell you to do? You should give. 
right? That is not what they tell you to do in Economics 101, right? It's the opposite. If you want to be great, what should you be doing? It should be less. Again, not the opposite. We're told to climb the corporate ladder and get promotion after promotion. God says, no, 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 humble yourself. Be a servant. Then you'll be elevated. It's the exact opposite. Jesus himself washed the feet of the disciples, and they're sitting like, I don't think so. Jesus, you are Jesus. You don't wash feet. Your feet should be washed. And then you should be handed like caviar and like someone feeding you grapes because you're Jesus. Let us do that to you. He's like, no, 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 no. That's not how this works. I came to serve, not be served. It's the same thing. It's the antithesis of everything in this world. We'll get into that later on. But here's the thing. We have to see it's in him, not in ourselves. You guys following me on this? I want to make sure you're getting this because this is the necessity to unlock the things of God is our belief in Him. Let's look at John chapter 1, verse, starting in verse 12. But as many as received Him, to them, so who is the them? Those that received Him. He gave the right to become the children of God. To those who do what? Believe in His name. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, again, let's read this slowly. This is John chapter 1. In the beginning was God, and God, and the Word, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, so on and so forth. Here we are in chapter 12, verse, and it, or, excuse me, chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, verse 14, where he tells us exactly who this is. This is referring to Jesus. But as many as received them, those became the right to become the children of God, those who received him. Who believe in what? In his name. That's the key to understanding this passage. It's the belief in his name. Who were born not of the blood. Now, wait a minute. Do you not have to be born to be born? Of course you do. If you're not born, you're not here. Anybody here never been born? Right. Okay. That's like the same thing. You know, okay, if you're not here tonight, raise your hand. You know. Nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, we're not talking about a physical thing going on. It is this children of God. How are you the children of God? It's not by the blood. You're not being born. It's not by the will of any person. And it's certainly not the will of mankind as a whole. It is of God. It is His will. Follow me? So if you have received Him and believed in His name, are you a child of God? Yes, you are. That comes with certain rights and certain responsibilities. It was by the will of God. Okay, let's look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created how? In Christ Jesus. For good works, which prepare, God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're his workmanship. But how is that? You could just say in him. Same thing, right? In him. We're going to hear that a lot today. We're not his workmanship based off what we bring to the table. Our righteousness is but filthy rags outside of God. Colossians chapter 2. Starting with verse 4. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. Now again, this is Paul talking. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit. Okay? So he's there, he's talking like, I am with you. He's giving somewhat of his authority there. He's saying, yes, I am with you here. Rejoicing to see your good order in the steadfastness of your faith in what? In Christ. Your belief in Him. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Right? Many of you thought you might show up today, and that's what we'll be talking about, thanksgiving, right? 
It's typically what we do, but not this time. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to what? The tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Now, what are these basic principles of the world? These are the things we just talked about. You want to be rich? Hoard everything you can. Do whatever it takes. You want to be great? Work your way to the top. Cheat if necessary. Do whatever you can. It's the opposite of the things. If you want to be right with God, what do you do? Well, you be a good person. It's the opposite. It's according to Christ. For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. What it's just saying is in Christ, the entire Godhead is there. All of them. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all there. And you are complete in Him who is the head of all principality and power. Does that leave anything left? No, this is all. He's seated far above the principalities and powers in the darkness of this age. You guys see how these scriptures are all starting to come together. But what is the key? It's in Him. It's in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in Him. Are you complete? The answer is yes. What do you lack? Nothing. Why? Because you're in Him. This is not talking about your checking account. This is talking spiritually you are complete in Him. Verse 11, in Him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. Let me unpack this. Circumcision, uncircumcision. What are we talking about here? Jewishness, right? How did they enter in to the covenant of Moses? circumcision okay now this is talking about you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands this is not talking about a physical thing because even Moses said you need circumcision of the heart he says that in Deuteronomy yeah you follow through the steps to technically be correct but your heart is far from God this is sitting there talking about how you weren't done this through works of man but by putting off the body of sins of the flesh the circumcision of Christ then what happens we're buried with him in baptism we died with him on the cross in baptism were buried with him, in which we were raised with him when he came out of the grave. Through what? Through faith in what? The working of God. Not faith in your ability. It's the work of God who raised him from the dead. This is what's going on. Our belief, faith, belief. Same word. It's interchangeable. The, the charismatic church has taken this word faith and exploded it into something that is never. It's simple. It's belief. Okay? Verse 13, and you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. How many of them? All of them. Why? Because you're made new. You're made in the image of God. You are now righteous. Therefore, there is no sin in you because he came to destroy the works of the devil. The works of the devil were sin. Sin has been removed from you. Therefore, you can enter into the presence of God. You are made right with him, through him, and in him. Verse 14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. What on earth is he talking about here? The handwriting requirements was a penance that you owed. You owed a debt to society, and it would be written down. And when you would serve that debt to society, you'd be in prison, whatever that amount of time was. That should you escape from prison, I'm talking about Jewish time and Roman law and all this other stuff, 
that should you escape, that person that was overseeing you would be required to carry out your sentence. So if you weren't supposed to be in there for 10 years and you, were out, you escape after two, that jailer now is responsible for the other eight. But once your time was served, they would write on it to telestai in Greek, which means it is finished, it is complete. And the handwriting requirements is no longer because you have paid your debt to society. Therefore, now you are free to roam about as you want within the kind of the law. Now, what did this just tell us? We go back. Verse 8. You being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he, being Christ, has made alive together with him, or I should say God, made us alive with Christ, having forgiven all our trespasses. He wiped out the handwriting and requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way. How did he do it? He nailed it to the cross. What did Jesus say at the cross? He said, to telestai. It is finished. It's the exact same words there. All of that has been removed. Therefore, we no longer owe a debt to death because that price has been paid by Jesus, and we'll only see death once, physically. Spiritually, because we are in him, we all never see it. Verse 15, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. How did he do that? Did he hold a parade? Because that's what they would do. When they would defeat a kingdom, they would walk through and they would parade whatever officials were there. They'd either parade them through alive and then kill them or would parade their bodies. Sometimes they would behead them and they would have their heads being held up or on, on sticks and different things. So yeah, kind of gruesome, right? Aren't you glad we live in a different time now, at least here? There are parts of the world this still takes place. But how did he do it? One simple little thing. Not a big deal. He overcame death by overcoming death. He came back from the dead. This is a public... This is the opposite of... Every, who else came back from the dead? Only people that Jesus may do it, right? Here he is. It's like death had a right to sin because if you sin, then you deserve death. And the sin of the world was placed on him. But when he resurrected... He overcame death. Therefore, spiritually speaking, we will never die if you are in him. How did he make a public spectacle of him? He overcame death. Name anybody else that overcame death. There's not one. There are people who the one who overcame death brought back, but nobody ever overcame death prior to this. This is Jesus. Okay, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Starting in verse 16. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. We read this already. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. How many things? Okay, then it says, now all things are of God. How many things? Still all. Who has reconciled us to himself. How? Through Jesus Christ. Then he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ. Where was the Father? In Christ, reconcile the world to himself, not imputing the trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. We read this, but look, I mean, it's all, it's not some, it's all. Like, we've got to get past this idea that I'm just this poor, wretched sinner saved by grace. I was, not now. I am the righteousness of God in Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. This is one of those cute, like we say all the time thing without ever thinking what it means. We have two laws going on. Laws mean there are rules that are, you abide by. You've got the law of sin and death, which means what? If you sin, you deserve death, not just physically. Because you look at the example of Adam. When he sinned, 
Did he die? Physically, no, not at that moment. And the Hebrew says, dying, you will die. Spiritually, he died in that moment. He didn't die for 900 and some years later, depending on when that actually took place. So you've got the law of sin of death. By sin, death entered into the world. That is the law we're talking about. But here we've got the law of the spirit of life. Okay? Now think about how they lived before that. Eat of the tree, right? The tree of life. How does this work? The spirit of life? Well, it's in Christ Jesus. Who set us free? He did. So we're not bound by this anymore. Like we need to be bolder. We need to understand who we are. I mean, think about this for a minute. Okay, Donald Trump's son, what's his name, Barron, right? Kind of a goofy kid. He's tan. He's kind of weird, you know. Uh, they made lots of fun of him. I understand that. That's all well and good. But when he walks into the Trump household, does he ask permission to hit the fridge? I don't think so. He just walks in. Why? That man's confident. Well, I shouldn't say man. That boy is confident. Why? You know who my dad is? Like, you ever heard somebody say that? I remember I was getting, like, I was getting in a little tussle when I was in grade school. And literally somebody said, you know who my daddy is? It's like, uh, no. <laughs> and he's like, well, he's that really big guy over there. And then I stopped. I mean, he was, he was a large man. But I mean, it's like, think about this from the same aspect. Do you know who your dad is? Like, there should be this confidence. You are in the household of God. There should be this confidence. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're almost done, sort of. We're going to start in 18. We're going to work our way through chapter 2 for a little bit. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What is the message of the cross? What did we just read before? The handwriting requirements have been removed through what Jesus did. That's the message of the cross. Sin has been taken away. It's been paid for. To Telestai. Now, what is that message to? It is foolishness. To those who are perishing. Are you perishing? So this is not talking about you as a believer. This is talking about the unbeliever. Does the message of the cross make any sense to an unbeliever? The answer is no. So you're telling me that if Adolf Hitler, right before he died, said, Father, forgive me, make Jesus his Lord and Savior, he's in heaven? You can't tell me that. That's literally what it says. That is foolishness to those who are dying. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Okay, verse 20. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? You've got a couple different people. We're talking about a hierarchy of wisdom in the Jewish faith here. The scribe was the one who takes down. Remember, it's the scribes and the Pharisees are always giving Jesus a hard time. The disputer of this age should be talking about somebody who is constantly like, okay, well, you know, where is the sign of your coming and all this other stuff you see in Scripture? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Okay, this goes exactly with Romans 1, that they were wise in their own eyes and therefore rejected Christ. They don't believe in Him. Verse 22, for Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. Okay, Jews are looking for some sort of a sign, right? That we just, Janet was talking about this morning. What is the sign of the coming of your kingdom? Jesus goes into it. The Greeks seek after wisdom. Okay, you've got to explain this to me. I have to philosophically understand everything that you're saying. Verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified. 
To the Jews, that's a stumbling block, and to the Greek, foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. If you want to be great, serve. If you want to be rich, give. It's the opposite. It's what we're talking about here. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. Flesh. Okay? But of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that as it is written, He who glories, let Him glory in the Lord. He became for us the wisdom of God, he became righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Righteousness means we are made right with God. That's what we call justified. Sanctification, we are being made right with God. And redemption means that He paid the price for us. That price has been paid. Chapter 2, verse 1. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. Okay, He didn't come here to just try to convince you. For I determined not to know anything among you except... Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So it's pretty simple, right? I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So did He go in there just trying to convince them? he take their philosophy and His philosophy and say, let me show you all the reasons why I'm, you're, I'm right and you're wrong. This wasn't a debate that was going on. He walked in there and simply preached that Christ was crucified, what that means, why it happened, and what that has to do with us. And then he walked in the spirit and the power of God, performing signs, wonders, and miracles. This all ties together. But what was the key to all of this? It's belief in him. It's the key that unlocks everything. It's in him. Now we're going to look at Romans chapter 7 briefly. Because, well I say briefly, it's not going to be briefly, but... Romans chapter 7 is like you would think that Paul had like an aneurysm or a stroke or something because it's like the most bipolar chapter in the entire Bible in my opinion because he gets in and he's just like, he goes nuts and you'll see that here in a moment. But you've got to understand, he's talking about the flesh versus the spirit. And if you keep that in mind, then it will begin to make sense. Romans chapter 7. Or do you not know, and I'll tell you this guys, it was hard to only do Romans chapter 7. I think everybody should read the book of Romans. It is literally a, a record of how we should be doing things. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, which would be who? The Jews. They know the law. That the law has dominion over man as long as he lives. Keep that in mind. How long does that law have dominion over man? As long as he's alive. Did you die? Yes, you did. Okay. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Kind of simple. We get that right. All right. Verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ. Did you die? Yes, you did. 
that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. Are you the bride of Christ? Yes, you are. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passage, passions which were aroused by the law at work in our members to bear fruit to death, but now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What is he talking about? He's not talking about physical death. He's talking spiritually. We died with Christ, and now we're no longer married there. We are now married to Him. We are the bride of Christ. Should we live that way? What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would have not known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. Is that one of the Ten Commandments? So do we know what he's talking about here? What law he's speaking of? Of course we do. The Old Testament Mosaic law. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. Now you think about this. What happens as soon as you tell your child not to do something? They do it, right? There's a little game that Josiah plays with Amy when she's folding laundry, and it's sitting there. He reaches up, he puts her hand on it, and he looks over at her. And she's like, don't you do it. He smiles, and he pulls it all on the floor. And then she picks it up, and he does it again. And it is absolutely adorable. But anyway. But sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Has then, verse 13, what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that the sin through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. It is showing that you cannot keep what God is telling you to keep. It is producing this death. You realize that on your own, you can't do this. That is why there's a day of atonement. That is why all the sacrifices took place. Is because it was time and time again, they were unable to fulfill this. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, and here we go, this is the bipolar part. What I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For the will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I'm going to stop there for a minute because you see where he's confused. The poor guy had a stroke. He was riding along having a good day sitting in prison somewhere. And all of a sudden he just went nuts. Can you imagine writing it? But he is talking about your physical sin versus your spiritual sin. That has been taken away. That spirit wills to do the good things that God has told us to do. But what is fighting that? The man that you live inside of. Right? That one wills to do all the things that are contrary to God. So when I do the things that are good, then that's good. But the things I don't want to do, those I end up doing because I'm fighting this man and sometimes he's winning. That's essentially what he's saying. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. How is that possible? Because the I is that spiritual person. 
It's no longer just this fleshly one. I find then a law that, is, that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. So what are we talking about? Spiritual person. But I see another law in my members. Right? Okay. Warring against the law of my mind. It doesn't say suggesting. It's like, hey, I think you should do that. It says warring. This is a battle. And bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Where's it at? It's here. Where's it not at? Inside. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? What's he talking about? This physical man. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Spiritually, physically. That is the difference. You guys see that. This is what is going on. There's this battle that takes place. In him, there is no sin. This this thing needs to go, right? And it's going to be made new at the time of Christ's return. Then it says that there is no condemnation for those who walk in the Spirit. That's immediately fall in 8, chapter, 8, chapter 8, verse 1. Let's read that. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So you guys see the context here. You've got this whole battle that's going on. He just told you there's no condemnation if you're in Christ, Right? They don't walk according to the flesh, they walk according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. So how did God overcome this? This sinful flesh, how did He overcome He sent His Son. That those who are in Him, there's no condemnation. For, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son to the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. This isn't thinking happy thoughts. There is a difference here. Think about it. The Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, able to separate soul and spirit. Your soul is where the thoughts are. The things of God versus the things of man. It's the only thing that can do this. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. That's another big word. That doesn't mean like, hey, I think you should. No, this is a battle that is going on. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So are you surprised when you have thoughts that are contrary to the God? You shouldn't be. Because it can't be subject to the things of God. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Are you in the flesh? No, you are in the Spirit. It's the only way you can please God. But you who are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. How do you know if you're in the Spirit? The Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. It's going to die. But the spirit is life because of righteousness. Why are you going to make it? Because of Christ's righteousness. You are in Him. But if the spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His spirit who dwells in you. I want you to think about this for a minute because we have 
use this verse to say, the Spirit of Christ that dwells in me, that raised Christ from the dead, will give life to the Spirit. Therefore, it will be healed, and it will have energy, and it will do all of these things. That is not what that just said. Because the context of this is salvation. What is going to happen at the blowing of that trumpet? The dead in Christ will rise first. That is the life that will be given to the mortal body. All the other things that I just described are promises of God. You don't need the other stuff because it is promised by God that this body will do the things that it's supposed to do. He will give life to them if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. Who was that? The Holy Spirit. The Father is the Him. You got all three working here, guys. It's not one or the other. Was raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. you. But there's an if. How does that happen? You put your faith and your hope in Him. John chapter 14, verse 8. I promise, I'm almost done. I know I'm killing you guys with Scripture today. John chapter 14, verse 8. There's, there's worse ways to die, though, I promise. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. And it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? That's not the response he was looking for. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? Okay, you got both. The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father... Who dwells in me does the works. Who's doing the works? The Father. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for what? The sakes of the works themselves. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. Now let's stop there for a minute. This is the last passage. I'm going to land this plane a little bit today. The key to everything is what? In Him. Everything. Belief in Him. When you believe in Him, then you are no longer of yourself. Now you are part of Him. And the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. And the Spirit dwells in you. And certainly the Father dwells in you because I am in the Father and the Father is in me. So we have the triunity of God going all inside of us. But He never spoke on His own authority. Do we speak on our own authority? No. The Spirit of Christ compels us to be reconciled to God. Right? Whose authority are we operating in? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. We're operating in the power of God. But then he goes into something else. He tells them that you believe in the Father and the Father's in me, but at least for the works. And then he says something that, that kind of gets overblown here. He who believes in me. Okay. Now who is that? All who believe, right? Anybody who's born again. The works that I do, he will do also. What works did Christ do? Well, he taught in the synagogues. He preached the gospel, he healed the sick, he raised the dead, okay? So the works that I do, he will do also. Who is the he? He who believes in me, right? So who is that? That's pretty much everybody who believes in him, yes? No way around it. There's no, there's not, there's not a special anointing. There's not like, oh, you know, that's the pastor, that's some great evangelist, that's the Billy Grahams of the world, the Reinhardt Bonkies. I say his name just because I like saying bonky, I'm sorry. You know, all these great ministers of the past. We're not talking about them. It's talking about all him who believes. But then he says something else. Greater works than these he will do. Who is still he? He who believes. Because I go to my father. Why will they do greater works? Because he goes to his father. Right? The reason they're greater is because we'll do more of them because we're going to be around a lot longer. Not greater in, uh, in construct, but greater in mass. 
Because instead of just Jesus doing it, now you have all of his representatives doing it. And who are his representatives? Those who believe in him. So who does that include? It's all of us. So why if Jesus himself, I mean, if Jesus showed up today, he comes in here and he says, Janet, here's the deal. From now on, every time you pray for somebody, they're going to get healed. There would be a confidence in Janet, yes? Understandably so. And what would happen is like, oh, my knee hurts. Hey, Janet, come here real quick, right? We'd all be doing that. But what is the difference between that happening and what we just read? Why do we only agree with this when we don't believe it? And we don't believe it so much the fact that we don't even do it. We avoid it. We avoid it like the plague. We're like, oh, oh, somebody's sick. Oh, Lord, heal them. We don't want to put ourselves out there. And you know why we don't do that? It is all pride. Because we're afraid, what if it doesn't work? Whose fault is it if it doesn't work? It's not yours. It's the Spirit of Christ in you. It's God's responsibility. What if I go and share the gospel and nobody gets saved? I'd be just like Paul. Right? Pretty good company to be around. You see, we don't do the works of God because we're not confident in it. But I, can't, I mean, how many more? You know, I could have, we could still be going. We could have a lot more verses than what I just read to you. But you guys see, the thing that unlocks everything is those simple two words. It's in Him. And if you're in Him, if you're so confident that you're, you're the righteousness of God in Christ and you're going to spend eternity with God, why don't we have a little bit of that confidence in doing the works of Christ on this earth? Because He just said, greater works than these will He do. I'm going to read you Mark 16. I didn't put this in here. Last one, I promise. I'll get you out of here. I know you're probably hungry. Bear with me. Open your Bibles. I don't say that here very often, do I? Mark chapter 16. I didn't put it in there. I've got to read it. I'd recite it, but I'd probably butcher it. I'm reading out of the New King James. If you're not, you're wrong, but that's okay. This is right before Jesus ascends into heaven. He's given his last commands. The disciple is going to tell him to go into Jerusalem. Mark chapter 16, we're going to start in verse 14. He says, later he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he did what? He rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart. Because, why? They did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. Why did he get on to them? Because he told them, I'm coming back. It's three days. You guys will be fine. Just don't screw it up in three days. That's all you got to do. I'm coming back. And why did he rebuke them? He didn't believe those who said he was back. Why? Hardness of heart and unbelief. No, you're crazy. I mean, I know that's what he said, but that's surely not what he meant. He surely meant something spiritual. Verse 15. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Okay, does that leave anything, any stone unturned? No, all the world literally means all of it. Every creature means anything with breath. Okay. Verse 16. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Okay, so what is the key there? Belief. Okay. Then he says, and these signs will follow those who believe. Who is those? Because we always look at this as if he's talking to the disciples. Those are the ones, he who believes. He who believes is the those. It's everybody. In my name they will cast out demons. Did Jesus do that? Yup. They will speak in new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink any de anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. To he who believes. In him. Not he who believes that healing works. It's belief in Him. If you believe in Him, then you believe in His Word. And if you believe in His Word, then you understand that you have a responsibility in this earth. And if you understand that you have a responsibility in this earth and that you're not doing it, then you're probably not pleasing God. And if you're not pleasing God, then you need to repent and say, God, I'm sorry for not being your hands and not being your feet and not being your representative. 
If you have a representative of your company that you send out to go and do something on your behalf and they're not doing it, what do you do to them? You fire them. Luckily, God's not firing us, but we deserve it. We don't deserve to be made the righteousness of God in Christ. We can't even do the little things that he's told us to do. You see, I'm trying to build up a faith in you guys that we can be the hands and feet of God. Because those are the things that's going to reach the lost. It's not in, in philosophy and in mighty words. It's in the spirit of God and his power that is going to make people understand that God is alive and real. Because I can stand in front of an atheist who will sit there and who's probably smarter than me and tell me all the different reasons that God doesn't exist. But if he's got a bum leg and I pray for him and that leg is healed, explain that philosophically. You can't. It ends the argument. Does that mean they'll put their faith in Christ? Nope. I mean, look at the Pharisees. Jesus raised from the dead. They're paying off the guards. Nah, no, that can't be. Uh, uh, here's some money. Keep it quiet. Tell nobody nothing. Right? We got to believe in this word. We can't just agree with it anymore. You guys need to go home. You need to just meditate on the scriptures. You need to see what it means to be in him, walking in that authority. It's more than just getting out of hell. It is more than this just, this. okay, I get to spend eternity with God. There is a prerequisite on this earth, and all who believe in him have that responsibility. As we continue to go on, I, I, every week I think, okay, this is the last time I'm going to rehash this in him aspect and move on to something else. So I don't know what's happening next week, okay, to be honest with you. But we're going to begin to see how those things, all those puzzle pieces fit together and we do the work of God. Because guess what? It's not complicated. It's really not. We make it complicated. It amazes me when I see churches that are hiring pastors who the requirements for them to be qualified to be their pastor, Jesus didn't meet. If Jesus can't be your pastor, something's wrong. You may need to rethink your hiring process. But it's like we put all these qualifications in, and, and it's like every week I get a phone call from somebody. It's like, hey, can you pray for me? You know, I'm sick. Or can you go pray for so-and-so? And that's fine. I don't mind doing it. I'm not telling you don't call me. But why are they calling just me? Because everybody here has that same power and ability and the same spirit of Christ that's in them, right? There's nothing special about me. I mean, obviously something special, but not... Not spiritually speaking. It's nice to see you guys smile again, okay? That wasn't a joke. You got to learn when to laugh, okay? <laughs> guys, we're God's hands and feet. 